Hey everyone, and welcome to the show. In this week's episode, Thomas and I discuss Snow White. We talk about some of the things that we really enjoy about the film. We talk about the history of it, which includes sort of, you know, the making of, what inspired the film, and the premiere of the film. A really sort of important film, not just in Disney history, but in sort of cinematic history. So it was a fun time talking about it, and we hope you enjoy it too. If you want to follow the show on Instagram, you can follow us on Talking Llamas Podcast. You can also follow me at the Disney Dad on Instagram, and you can look at our Facebook page, The Talking Llamas Podcast. We also have a blog that's just talk, that website. Just say it. TalkingLlamasPodcast.com. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. yeah, so TalkingLlamasPodcast.com. And as always, just go ahead and if you have anything to say about the show, positive or negative, just go ahead and give us a review um, and help shape the future of the show. We'd love to hear what you have to say. All right, guys. Well, enjoy the show. Hey guys, and thanks for downloading the show. My name is Robert Camozzi, and I'm your host, joined here as always by Thomas Nelson. Hey everybody, happy to be here today. Thomas, who continues uh, to be sick and also continues to pose a danger to all around him as a in, result. And not even, oh, as a result, okay. Yeah, of, being, of being sick. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's a struggle being me. But, you know, we're here. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's limited to a cough, so you're probably towards the end of it, but in case anyone hears you. That's what I thought last week. You actually proposed a, a new segment called Tissues with Thomas because you basically have a tissue tied to your hip at all times now, or a tissue box, rather. Yeah, I've had to buy several. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't know what that segment would be, but I bet it would be pretty... pretty uh, the, peop- the people... Pretty emotional. The people would love it. Maybe one day. Uh, did you watch what well, you just told me you watched, the Onward and the Jungle Cruise teaser trailers the first like well, sure the, yeah the jungle cruise one i think is the first trailer we've seen the onward one is the second sort of sort of trailer what did you think um uh, so jungle cruise i just watched that like an hour ago and i i sort of liked it i don't know i kind of have to sit with it a little bit a little bit more um it uh it seemed intriguing visually the first half was more interesting to me when it got into like when they stuck to the ride stuff, but they gave that all away like right in the first like yeah few seconds. It like you know the Rock is like this kind of charlatan like he's basically going through the Jungle Cruise as if it were real. Like there's like fake hippos and then he starts this water that comes down and then says the backside of water and does all the Jungle Cruise jokes that you hear if you've ever been on that ride. And I was. That actually like was what I was looking forward to about the movie, and then they just kind of showed in the trailer. So, I guess there's going to be a lot more there. Well, that I mean, there, there's got to be, and I think that's what they're trying to tell us is there's there's actually an actual story here because the attraction it, itself is only seven and a half minutes. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to make that into a film. No, yeah, no. So the smaller bits that we enjoy, it, I think it's fine to show us that in the trailer, and they probably didn't even do all of it. Where do you stand on these sort of 
live action films created from so we have a few now right so we inspired by attractions like pirates haunted mansion just not even like in the how much you like those films but just sort of the idea of creating a film based on an attraction where do you stand on that I think we talked a little bit about this last week, yeah. and uh, I, I have no problem with it, only because the attraction, it's not going to tarnish the attraction, in my opinion. It's only there as like a secondary way to enjoy, like, sort of the, I guess, the the feeling behind the attraction, if they can capture it well in the film. Uh, I think with Haunted Mansion, they kind of, they did a pretty good job because it is supposed to be both a little bit scary, but also funny, um, or comical. Um, pirates, I don't know so much. I like the first pirates a lot, yeah. and I really haven't studied the other ones enough. Um, and by studied, I mean watch uh, to give an, uh, an educated opinion on them. Uh, from what I understand, the second one's still pretty good, and then from there, it kind of dips. But the first one I really like, and I haven't seen the haunted mansion yet. You should see it. It's, it's just a simple movie. Uh, I don't think you're going to go, you know, out and buy it. No. Uh, after you see it, but I think Peyton will like it. I enjoy it. There's, it's just a fun movie. Nothing. I want to watch it before Halloween. So it's not something to take too seriously. In the vein of movies based on rides, I'm waiting for that King Arthur Carousel movie to come out. Is that a J? <laughs> That's a joke. Okay, that is a joke. Well, I mean, it'd be it'd be interesting to see what they did with it. It would be because there'd have to be a whole big story attached to it. The whole movie would... takes place on the carousel. It's a rom com. That, that that actually could be interesting. <laughs> I don't know how on earth you would do it. There'd have to be some compartment above the horses, you know, where you have all the lights and the mirrors and everything that people could be in or something like that. And you could go up there and have some scenes up there, but also come down on... You know what? It'd have to be with mice. Yes. Critters. It'd probably have to... Well, Disney, give us a call. We're not going to give up too much of the... Yeah, give us a C and we'll give you some eyes, ideas. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> Anyways. All right. So uh, before we get completely derailed, uh, Onward, that one actually looks intriguing to me. That's Pixar. Yeah. So they usually do a good job. I'm, I I like the idea of it being just something totally new, like a completely new story is what I'm sort of looking forward to. Like something I have no idea kind of what I'm getting when I go into it in terms of just you know, the characters and everything. And this trailer gave us a lot more information than the previous teaser trailer, so much so that it completely changed the direction of the story, at least f- from what we could have predicted from the teaser. It looked pretty funny, too, which I enjoy. It looked like it had some some comedy, and you've got Chris Pratt and Tom Holland, so that'll be fun. Um, I'm going to make a prediction that it's going to be something like The Good Dinosaur. Oh, really? That's uh, not yeah. great. Have you seen yeah. that one? You saw it. Yeah, I saw it with with you and some other people, but it... I got, like, sort of Monsters, Inc. vibes from it. Maybe that's just because they're these, like, sort of um, fantastical creatures are in it. Maybe that's why I'm making that attachment to it. But that was the sort of vibe I got from it, for whatever reason. We'll see. I always want these movies to be good, so I'll try to give it a, ch- a shot, and uh, hopefully it's really good. Because Pixar tends to do yeah. good movies. But yeah. every now and then you do get a, a good dinosaur. Yeah, a mediocre dinosaur. <laughs> Speaking of uh, of good movies, today we're talking about Snow White. Uh, we're gonna kind of kind of break that down, um, and just a a really a film that we both have a lot of appreciation for. Just not in terms of like it being a good movie, but the history behind it. I know that I appreciate that movie a lot, and and upon rewatch, 
was able to really, you know, with the history that I've kind of been thinking about recently, find a new appreciation for it. Um, I don't know if you had the same experience. Oh, yeah. For a while, maybe a few years ago, for a few years, so say maybe 2015 to like 2018 or something, I wasn't as steeped in the history of Disney at all. It was more just enjoying it through the parks and films. So more consuming, um, only for pleasure, not so much for information. And uh, so my appreciation of this film wasn't as strong. But in recent years, I guess the past year, maybe year and a half, getting more into the history, you start to realize, oh, there's so much creative intent in these films and effort that goes into them and it's really something to marvel and then the influence that the films have years later almost a hundred years later well this movie especially had i mean it just changed things i think for i mean people were thinking when this movie was being talked about and made that it was just a, a, a horrible idea and whenever i watch it i it opened december 21st 1937 1937 just the fact that this movie, considering how the animation looks, considering it was open, it opened that long ago, uh, debuted that long ago, is incredible when you see the animation because the animation is really quite good. Yeah, and luckily we have the opportunity to experience it on a, a higher definition, yeah. uh, higher resolution screen. So who knows if they? Ha- I don't know how they remaster these things, but they, they obviously did. Well, you watch some of these movies that are old, but not that old. And the animation is not as high quality. I mean, it just isn't as high quality as that. Like, I'm thinking of something like the Aristocats and oh, those sorts of things. Oh, you're, yeah, you're talking about the, the artwork. Yeah. The artistic mm-hmm. quality of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I love about these earlier films, including Pinocchio and, and others, too. Even Cinderella, when we watched it. Something that Walt wanted for at least, I guess, his bigger features was to have clean lines uh, of the characters and whatever yeah. is in the background. And... You can really see that, especially in Pinocchio and even in Cinderella, but Snow White as well, where they get into yeah. really honing in on the craft of animation, the artwork. I think Pinocchio is my favorite for that to kind of look back on, but but Snow White's up there. The the I think they figured out better in uh, in Pinocchio how to animate the human characters, and um, and the, the animals are what they're a lot better at in. Snow White to me. They just seemed to be better at that time. They had more animators who were used to drawing animals, and the animals are really well done. The humans, not as much, but but still. There's only, what, four humans? There's three, right? Uh, oh, well, there's the huntsman. The, yeah, the huntsman, and then all the dwarves as well. Which, uh, yeah, the dwarves are more cartoonish. Yeah, me. but they, they run and walk like people. I mean, really, even the humans don't look completely realistic. Yeah. And that wasn't the intent either, because. To be too realistic would be something it's something that would draw you out of the fantasy element of the story. Everything is somewhat a caricature, which is something Walt's talked about, actually. Um, I believe that everything's a little bit of a caricature, even if it's aiming towards realism. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a great movie. Watch it. I just watched it back today, and I'd watched it a few weeks ago. And it's just a... I used to appreciate it but i really appreciate it now and the fact that it opened so long ago uh is is what i mean and it really was a revolutionary idea to this point before it was made up until 1934 when it was kind of conceived disney was really just doing shorts short films that played before feature films basically in movie theaters uh silly symphony stuff basically 
and that became less and less profitable as time went on for a number of reasons. The cost went up of making those short films and also the depression, it, it changed how m- movie theaters kind of structured things and, and they started doing double features, two feature-length films on one ticket, which basically just, I mean, it squeezed out a lot of these short films. There wasn't as, as many opportunities to show those f- short films before feature films. So, I mean, basically, it became apparent to Walt that the future of animation was going to be in feature films. Now, were those double features what like something like what they did later, where they put two half-hour or so uh, shorts together to make it an hour? Because that's what I gathered from the reading. But it's possible that I was when I was reading that biography. Um, it's it's one of the Walt biographies. Do you, do you know the name of it off the top of your head? Uh, Walt Disney, an American original. Yeah, Bob Thomas. It's a really good one. They didn't mention time or anything like that. They didn't. They didn't mention any sort of like how long. They said feature okay, feature so, films. So, oh, they said feature films. Yeah. Okay. Because I, I had seen that there was, yeah, the silly symphonies thing was happening and it sort of was limiting because you could only do about you know eight to ten minutes or yeah. so at most. And then I think I read somewhere that they were considering something like an eighteen twenty minute. Those numbers I'm just throwing out there, but uh, yeah, longer than a. A regular short, but shorter, shorter than, than a feature. feature for sure, uh, in order to tell the Snow White and the Seven Dwarves tale. But since that wasn't really an option, um, and they had an inn at the Carthay Circle Theater, um, and you know somewhere to play the the film and yeah, and um, the Radio City Music Hall also said they would whatever they made they would they would play. Um, so Walt kind of can see the cost was the issue because a, a feature length animated film he projected it would it would cost and this was before they even got off the ground five hundred thousand dollars which at the time was a lot of money and people suspected that at that time anyways that you weren't going to be able to hold the attention of people on an animated film or maybe suspend disbelief for for that amount of time you know for i think snow white's like an hour and 20 minutes or something like that they didn't Mm -hmm. they this the suspicion was that and really the sort of just narrative was that nobody was going to pay attention to an animated feature for that long because the shorts were mostly made up of gags or there for laughs and how long can you sustain a gag and so the assumption was that that was going to maintain itself and that somehow putting in drama or romance or these other qualities that make a feature film usually great uh, they assumed that that just wouldn't transfer through the same uh, animation medium onto the big screen and, and that people wouldn't really be on board or it might it's really just they just didn't know what to expect, so they made a prediction, and they were they were wrong. Well, and and so Walt, you know, is the people in his life, his brother Roy and his wife were both sort of skeptical. I mean, to say the least, they were. Try, I'm sure they were trying to talk him out of it, but he just wouldn't be dissuaded. So he he kind of lands on Snow White based on a few. There's a there's a number of reasons why. Um, I don't, I don't know if you oh, could speak to that at all. Oh, I sure, mean, yeah. Well, as a kid, his grandmother would read him... The Grimm. The Grimm. Uh, d- different tales from the brothers Grimm. Two different brothers wrote stories. Um, their last name is Grimm. And also from Hans Christian Andersen, who I think... Uh, don't quote me on this one. I think he wrote Little Mermaid. Another one of the Disney tales that uh, we, we get uh, on the screen. So he had that, and he always loved Snow White the best. And then as a kid in 1916, he saw yeah, it was a silent was... film put out by Paramount that uh, depicted 
yeah. the Snow White Tale. Live action. Was, well, yeah, it's a silent film. Yeah, um, well. But it was it was actually, I believe, influenced by a 1912 play that did the same tale. So yeah. there's, this, there's this string of influence that Walt, he just loved the tale and he thought it was perfect for animation. Yeah, it seemed most practical to him. And so he sort of sets his sights on that and then he acts out, he kind of pulls all of his his animators into I, 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 the way they describe it. It's almost like he, a makeshift theater. He kind of pulls them all into with chairs and things. And, and he acts out the entire film over the course of a couple of hours. Um, you know, the way he saw it at the time and tells everyone at the end of him acting that out, that that's going to be their first feature film, their, their first animated feature film. And from, from then they, they start production on, on that. Well, he also did something similar for the, I don't know who he was, but he worked for the Bank of America. So investors. Uh, yeah. What, he was, Joseph uh, Rosenberg? Sure. Sounds like an investor. but uh, That's the one who, well, we'll talk about it later, but yeah, the, he's the one who was kind of funding their, all, a lot of their stuff, and he was the one, the, one of the investors who was in charge of funding this project down the right, line. So the basic story, and there are other d- details, of course, is that Walt did this performance you know, he had some some maybe storyboards or something close to it just to give a visual, but also he acted out. And you might see some visuals um, of Walt actually acting it out. There's one that you probably have seen if you're into the Disney history or you've seen behind the scenes. And he's saying, it's a magic wishing apple. And he's holding out his hand like the, the witch does in the film. He's kind of crouched over. But he's also a very good actor. You can see it. And I love seeing that. But also he did this for the investors and the, the guy sort of sat there, uh, sort of blank-faced, just watching. And then they walked out together at the end after Walt finished. And he said, this this film's going to make you a lot of money. Yeah, so... Indicating that he was indeed going to uh, fund the film. Yeah, well, so the story is is that they started off with this $500,000 estimate. And then it, as production went on, they sort of... It, it, it became clear that it was that that was like so ridiculously under what it was going to be. It, it was going to be three times that. And Roy told Walt that, "Hey, you know, this uh, you're going to need to show them what you have because." And they were only you know part part of the way through production. And and Roy told him, "Look, you're going to need to show the investors what you have on this film." done because they're not going to they're not going to just give you more money they're they need to see what you have so they they called joseph rosenberg in for this private showing and walt was really reluctant because he 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 told roy the quote that i saw was you know i don't like showing people things before it's finished and and roy really had to pull his arm and tell him like otherwise this isn't going to get done so they arranged like a private showing just with joseph rosenberg where they're sitting and you know, Walt's kind of filling in, because it's not finished, it's not like the movie's done, Walt's kind of filling in dialogue and saying, what, you know, when it's done, this is what will be here, this is what will be there, and uh, the guy just kept saying, yes, yes, just kind of like affirming. And at the end, Walt was like searching his face to see what his reaction is. He's not saying anything, they're talking about the weather, they're talking about Roy, and he says, all right, Walt, well, I'll see you, and then his exact quote from the book I read this morning to kind of refresh the story for myself was he said, Oh, by the way, that movie's going to make you a hat load of money, which 
I'm not sure what a hat load is, but I'm sure back then it made more sense. But a lot of money is the yeah. point. So they um, paid in a lot of coins back then. So <laughs> think about that. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, the point is, is uh, it it took a lot to get the film just off the ground because there was so much skepticism over the the just the fundamental idea of having a full length animated feature and it seems like the skepticism was in the idea not in the studio no yeah they were it was dubbed by some critics of it the disney folly was what they were calling it disney's he, folly yeah yeah he was just being foolish um it's so interesting to see the way that critics are uh in the in the 30s and probably even earlier it's the same way today they're always assuming the worst and maybe yeah. rightly so in some cases but well critics aren't I don't think by nature that critics are artists. And they're not giving the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're not artists, are they? No, so they don't think that that way. You know what I mean? I think that that's what it is, is that they're not thinking in that sort of way that an artist thinks, like like a Walt Disney thinks. An artist will think of the potential. And especially if you are the artist and you have the con- creative control like Walt Disney, you know that it's going to be you're going to put your best foot forward and it's it's likely to be good but of course you have to make it and make it uh, you have to produce it and make it good but a, a critic can't see that and yeah. un- understandably how could you well especially before the film was even was even out i mean this film it i it it posed a lot of challenges uh just with the the type of animation that had to be done uh the idea of that eventually created the multiplane camera of not being able to have like a flat, I don't know how they described it exactly, but to have like a, a sort of two-dimensional back, background with the characters wouldn't hold their attention, because that was what they were doing with the Silly Symphonies, um, but that wouldn't hold the attention of the audience for the full length of the film if it was going to be a feature film. Right, so the, the two-dimensional effect, or yeah, the two-dimensional effect is essentially you don't have as much depth as you could because there's no motion in the background. Everything is as it is. So let's say you made a painting of um, a landscape and it went back far and you could see these different hills and they get smaller. There's perspective as you go towards your horizon. That wouldn't change as the scene changed unless you drew it beforehand. Whereas if you draw multiple different elements separated and then spread out, and then you it's you have to look at the visual of the multiplane camera, but essentially you can manipulate different parts of it. If you're in a forest, the trees in the background can move at different pace than in the foreground. And so, yeah, two-dimensional is limited. And that multiplane camera is in use. I noticed it right away in the first shot of the movie with the castle. There's like a forest. You're looking through a forest at the castle, and the clouds are in the background moving behind the yeah. castle. Yeah, just like that. You, you know some about the multiplane camera. Are you able to kind of explain how that works? Um, you know a little bit more about it than I do. I could try if it doesn't make sense. Uh, boy, well, you have to look it up. But so over at the the Walt Disney Family Museum, we have we have a multiplane camera, and it it's enormous. It's a big yeah. It's, piece of it equipment. goes from the first floor, the store of the museum, and the top of it you can look down in the gallery. So it goes up to the through the second floor. Um, the actual floor. So it's maybe about, I don't know, 12 to 15 feet high. And there are maybe five, four, five, six different levels uh, that you can, and they're separated maybe by, I don't know, a foot, 
and half each. That's probably even manipulatable. You can probably change it. Uh, there's a lot of malleability with this whole device. You can change it left to right, up and down. It's quite fascinating. But these different levels represent different planes. So you could have Snow White on the first plane. Behind her are some animals who would maybe be behind her in the scene. And then behind that are the trees and so on. And you could have each part move independently of each other. And overhead, filming is the camera. So it captures all of it. And so you have to manipulate it in a particular way. Definitely try to look it up, though, because it's easier with the visual. I tried recently, well, a few years ago, there was a version that was horizontal. What I'm speaking about is vertical. And someone was trying to explain it to me. And without seeing a visual, it wasn't very easy to imagine. So think about that. Think about going on YouTube, check it out, or check out the museum if you can in San Francisco. That multi-plane camera first, uh, you know, revolutionized the whole animated feature thing but also i mean it's just it really it really helps sustain that suspension of disbelief for the film because it's not on this flat surface it it's it it adds a certain realism to it even though it's a cartoon that helps you stick with the movie so it, also in the museum there's a demonstration uh, video for you that you can watch in front of the uh, multi-plane camera and one way that they show you the difference is there's a scene on like an old country road where the camera zooms in to this barn. But in the background is the moon. And it stays the same exact size as you zoom in. Rather, it gets larger just on a 2D background because everything's the same size, everything gets bigger. But when you have the multiplane camera, you can manipulate the moon on its own and it stays the same size as you come closer to the the uh, the barn so everything is as it would be in real life so the first time this multi-plane camera was used wasn't actually snow white it was actually for um a silly symphony called um old mill which if you've ever seen it doesn't have any words it's just uh it's just music and like instrumentals and it basically is it's the first time that this this camera was ever used and you can say they were sort of they were sort of testing it but it's you can see when you watch it that it's the the scenes are layered in a different way than any other silly symphony before it that's really interesting if you ever want to watch that one that's one of my favorite ones have you ever seen that one i think we watched it together um but yeah. i don't remember it that well. i saw i got lucky enough to see it and i've told you this i got to see it in the theater one time because it played before a basically a showing of Little Mermaid at a, a movie theater that was nearby. They played that short before the movie, and I didn't even know what I was watching at the time. Yeah. So that that was interesting. But anyway, so the point is, you know, techno technological advancements uh, in movie making and just the idea that something like this can be made and people would go see it was revolutionary for the time. I mean, it was a really big deal. So it's, it's changed. I mean, there's obviously there's... Multiple animated films each year come out now. You know, I heard that uh, the success of Snow White inspired, I guess, the head of MGM at the time to go ahead and make The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, there was a couple it, movies they said were like... sort of a competition with Disney. But yeah. that's known as a classic now. It's it's something that... I, it's a movie I really love. I don't think you've even seen it. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's But a... many people do love it. It's a classic from 1939, I believe. Uh, but it's interesting... You could see very very early on the influence of the work that uh, Disney and his team did on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Yeah, 
So the the movie's in production. They're working on a lot of things. Walt's heavily involved in in production. From I mean, there if you've most of you've probably seen the movie. It's it works in. It, it's interesting because, like we said before, Disney had been doing a lot of shorts that sort of relied on gags, and with the human characters in this movie, there's not a lot of gags. There's not a lot of funny funny things that center around the human characters. It's but they use the animals and the dwarves for sort of that comic that comic relief throughout the film. It's not gag centric. Uh, it has a complete. It's sort of a complete span of uh, I guess emotion. There's drama, comedy, romance, fear for sure. Um, so it's very it's it's more complete, and that's something that I think Walt probably knew would transfer well on, onto the screen, at least for audiences who watched it. And if we when we talk about the premiere. And how that went, uh, that is that is what happened. Everything came through, and people realized you could really uh, connect to this cartoon on the screen. So you said this movie was adapted, and a lot of these movies you see from from Disney, and, and I'm sure other studios as well, are adapted from fairy tales. There's, I mean, Pinocchio's the same way, Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid. You go on and on. There's, there's all sorts of, of fairy tales that have been adapted. It's interesting what they took from the fairy tale, which is only you read it. It's only it's like ten pages long or something like that. It's, yeah, it's really short. But what they decided to keep with this and and sort of Walt's interaction on that, uh, like the original story, the Queen. There's several attempts on on Snow White's life. Three, and they involve different things. They ended up just going. The apple yeah, the fir- is the one first of them. one. Yeah, the apple is the the third one. Uh, but the first one was essentially, I don't know what it's called, but the, she, uh, the queen was is disguised as, uh, I can't remember if she was an old woman yet or not, but she think, was in disguise. I think it's always, well, go on, I'm not she sure. She was yet. in disguise and she was going to demonstrate for the uh, for Snow White, who by the way in the story is seven, um, in the written story. That, in the fairy tale. That, that the, the Grimm's did, which by the way, itself, like... The whole story was around for centuries before then, uh, but uh, that's we could talk about that. In the a sort of official adaptation, yes, yeah. the grim the story that Disney used. Anyway, she, uh, the queen disguised, had this lace that she was essentially going to strang- strangle the uh, the little girl with Snow White, and all she did was really just make her pass out. And so, assuming that she was dead, though, uh, the queen just went back to her castle, asked the the mirror who was the fairest in the land, and then. It you know gave her the truth, so she had to come up with another one, and that was a poisoned comb that she could you know nick uh, just real quickly on the skin of uh, Snow White, and that too didn't work. And I can't, I don't think they even explained why. Uh, uh, but uh, and then so she came back, did the mirror thing, and then it was time to get the apple. And the apple was interesting because she offered it to Snow White as a way to demonstrate, because by this time, Snow White had interacted with the dwarves and said, well, this is what happened, you know, uh, this old woman came, and they said, you can't open the door for anybody. You, can't, you just have, you can't do that. And uh, so she did it again when the, the queen came back, but, but she was more suspicious this time, so she asked the queen who offered her apples. Um, she, she told the queen, you know, I can't, uh, I'm not supposed to let anybody in or anything like that. And she said, oh, but you think I would poison you? And so she cuts off a little bit. And then she says, you take the red cheek, I'll take the white cheek, meaning the inside or the peel of the apple. And that way, 
Snow White could trust her. Now the poison was on the peel. So just one little taste of that and and Snow White falls to the ground. Very, and I mean in the snap of a finger, very quickly. This book is, ve- the, the book, the story is very succinct. Things just sort of happen. Yeah. They get to the point really quickly. Um, yeah, so that's how we get to the apple in that story. Well, and it's funny, interesting, I should say, how the things they decided to sort of omit. And there's there was interactions with Walt, which I sort of liked and was and didn't know if it was in the film and, and wish it had been, where the sort of as a nod to the, the Grimm story that uh, they would have the queen sort of contemplating which way they would she would sort of do Snow White in and she would mention those two other ways that happened that actually were attempted in the the grim tale um but they didn't they ended up not putting that in the final thing but it was interesting we were reading a a book that had some note some meeting notes basically yeah and Walt mentioned that like oh we could you know we're gonna go with the apple only but we could have her like kind of contemplating and mention those two other ways as a nod to the the original story uh, that didn't end up making the film, but there, you could tell they were kind of workshopping the ideas of, for the film as they went, and that's interesting. And and part of that was the idea of n- the names of all the dwarfs, like what names they would go with, because there's no names for the dwarfs in the in the no, original the story tale. I read. It was dwarf one, dwarf two, three, four, five, six, and seven. Is that literally what they were named? That's like, yeah. Interesting. Um, and I say the book I read because who knows what the translations really are, because uh, this was, I think maybe they were German, the Grimm brothers, but uh, European anyway, and not English speakers. So, yeah, we have to go off of the English version that I read, which was a collection of fairy tales. So, anyway, yeah, they uh, they personalized the dwarves for us, which adds to the, the story, obviously. I mean, those are some of people's favorite characters. Yeah, and they have, like, favorite ones. And it's very easy to know what to think about them, especially because they're named after these, you know, dopey, sleepy, bashful, you know, and so on. Uh, It's really the whole, everything they chose to use and then, you know, obviously get rid of, it turned into this amazing thing that uh, it's, it's fascinating to learn about. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to see how they sort of morphed it into their own thing and they made additions too like one thing that's not there in the story is any presence of animals really that's not really a thing in the the Grimm's uh, yeah. story but in the 1912 version of the, the you know the play that i mentioned earlier mm-hmm. i think there was one animal might have been a bird and uh it doesn't really matter it was it was one animal and then the 1916 film that walt saw had Probably the same bird. Maybe it was even a maybe it was a deer, but it doesn't matter. I, was, I want to say it was a deer, but I can't. There remember. was a rabbit also, so two animals. But they used the animals uh, that they added as a way to help Snow White get to the uh, the cottage. Yeah, sort of a lead into the cottage, and then later for help when they go get the dwarves to sort of get them back to the area. And like I said, they use them for comic relief as well. Where there's a lot of of gags that involve the animals that have nothing to do with Snow White because they've decided that Snow White's going to have more of a serious role uh, in the storytelling. Uh, the music, too. Uh, obviously, that's all... Not There's no music in the in the book for obvious... I mean, obviously. So... Uh, Could you imagine if they put sheet music in the pages and you yeah. had to sort of... Only people who could read music could know exactly what was happening. 
Hey, man, you could start a new trend. Disney, call us. Give us a call. We'll give you some eyes. Some eyes. So many eyes. Okay, um, but the music, I mean, there's a lot of iconic songs here. Um, you know, Hi-Ho is sort of the one, first one that comes to mind that's, we've talked about this so many times, but it, it, it works its way into into that popular culture. Everyone knows that song, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I love, I love all the music. I chose this as one of the soundtracks in my draft Yeah, uh, that we did episodes ago. I can't remember which one now, maybe two or three. It was really, very below very number early. five, but, uh, every song is, is great. And what I wish I'd known at the time that I drafted it, that the way they used songs was unique at the time, because a lot of times songs were used in this operatic fashion. And I don't really know exactly what that means, but I know that what the way that they compared it was that in Disney's film, the songs furthered the story or added to the action or Which is something developed we, characters. We see today. It, oh yeah, it that continues. Yeah, that's one of those things. Well, because I, I, I think I, I talked, we actually talked about this before that I said, you know, all the Disney movies move, the, the music they use, it, it moves the story along. You're not, at the end of the song, you're, you know more about the characters than you did before the song started. Yeah. And we kind of talked and we were like, well, what movies don't do that? But back then, I don't think movies did that so much. Now they now it's more of a common thing. I should start watching more films from back then just to see. Because, yeah, from Snow White on, it seems like that's kind of what what we get. That's the standard. But Walt, uh, Walt didn't want there to be a situation in which the audience watches the film, they're watching, they're enjoying it, and then all of a sudden there's a song in here. Yeah, the it suspension of disbelief was going to be, I think he was he suspected it was going to be really fragile as it was and he didn't want to do anything to undermine that any further. Yeah. It was the the sense I got from the sort of notes that I was reading. Hmm. Does that make, do you agree that that was kind of... Say it again so I can think. The the concern for everyone leading up to this film was that the suspension of disbelief was going to be sort of fragile. People keeping people engaged and sort of suspending their disbelief for an hour and a half on a cartoon. Right. Okay. Yes. And then if you just have people bursting out into song and it doesn't fit in and it seems out of place, then you're you're compromising what's already a fragile suspension of disbelief. And and that the music, of course, uh, helped with that. But also when we earlier talked about caricaturizing the characters, that's what an, animation is perfect. For. For that, because you, you realize, okay, this is a drawing that I'm watching, a series of drawings, but they also look like like people or animals, but they're also a little bit different. So there's a little bit of suspension of disbelief there. You buy into it, yeah, when you go in. Well, the, the animals are making faces that animals don't make, and right. So it's that's the that's the real benefit to animation that that Walt knew was going to be a benefit. And when you see the music, and we were talking about this before, the the way they did it is they would rhyme. Like I noticed it this time. Not I hadn't really noticed it before. Where Snow White would be just kind of talking. Do you remember which song? Because they, they don't do it on every song. No, it was it was the it was Whistle While You Work, and it was also the one where she. Uh, are you sure? Because doesn't she she does that with the birds? She starts the song with the birds, doesn't she? No, that's with a smile and a song. She does it there too, I believe. Well, the one she does with the birds, she she can't be speaking in rhyme. I guess she could be, but she, she there. It, it might not lead directly into the song, but it's 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 around Either that way, time. They use multiple ways actually it's about the bird thing. The birds, there's a back and forth, you know, where yeah. uh, she sings. Uh, they call it a uh, 
oh, what's it called? I can't remember. There's a term for it where it's just sort of music that's, it's not, uh, well, we can forget about that. But uh, she's going back and forth with, with the birds, and that is part of what leads her into um, with a smile and a song. Yeah. Just after she's escaped the forest she thought was full of monsters. Well, and the, the interesting thing, because I, I want to double back on that now, is the the forest scene is interesting because there's a lot of back and forth on how they were going to handle that. Cadenza, that's what it is. Okay, Cadenza. You're the music person. So. Yo, I hadn't really heard the term, but that's what, the, that's what I read on a couple of different sources. Yeah. The forest scene, though. It's interesting how they kind of worked shop that as well. There was a lot of back and forth on, you know, I think originally, Walt, there's a lot of faces on trees and things. And you're led to believe, based on how they do it, that it's all in kind of all in Snow White's imagination. But Walt originally didn't even want that. He wanted it because he didn't want people to think that the trees were actually monsters. He wanted it to be clear that Snow White was sort of creating all of this in her head. And I think they do an effective job of. I thought that as a kid. I knew that they weren't actual monsters yeah. as the scene went on. When I, they do an effective job of like when something grabs her, like or she'll get caught on like a tree branch or something. And it looks, when she looks at it, it looks like fingers. But then you can see as she runs away that it, it turns yeah. back into, and, and then the alligators and the, the well, there's one that I remember very, very uh, visually in, in my mind. It's very specifically is there's eyes in a tree, like in a hole in a tree and it's an owl and we see the owl fly out. Yeah. And that's the very beginning. And then it, yeah. it it kind of turns more and more from there. It it turns more and more fantastical, I guess you could say, where she's seeing like crocodiles that are actually just logs and these hands grabbing her that are actually just branches and actual trees with actual faces. And then she kind of goes into this uh, clearing and it's very dark and all these eyes are looking at her, but then it turns light and then it's clear that what is actually going on is that, you know, she's just kind of creating this all in her head. It's very bright, and the, the eyes you're seeing are actually these sort of friendly woodland creatures that all come out to, you know, engage with her and, and help her in her time of need. What's so, interesting is that fleeing the huntsman and going through the... That's not in the written story. Yeah, what so, did they where did they have their... How did they work that? You told me. Well, I can only barely remember it now. But uh, essentially, she just traveled through, you know, the land. There were, at one point, the queen had to go across seven, seven, uh, seven mountains. I think the seven mountains to get to the dwarf's cottage. So it was a long trek. She, I guess she just ran away. Uh, but in this one, there's actual. You get to experience this thing with her, because she's so scared by the huntsman and the fact that the her stepmom, the the wicked queen, wants to kill her. That she she runs away and then. Her mind is producing all these horrible monsters in the trees and, you know, uh, alligators in the, the ponds when they're not really there. And so then she finally has too much and screams and then falls to, the, to the, the floor of the forest. Yeah. And the way I look at it is Snow White's this very kind and sweet person. So the idea of someone murdering her just completely, she just kind of folds in on herself. She can't even fathom it. So she just collapses that's i I don't think there's an indication in the in the film the animated film how old she is but if she were seven yeah you know she's not she's definitely not seven in that film no no for a number of reasons she she couldn't be more than 14 though a couple uh yeah i mean a couple of things omitted from the film as well that were in the grim tale is um the interaction with the prince is very different we don't need to get into that but at the end he could later yeah that's a fascinating thing and by fast hand, I mean very odd. But the um, 
the evil queen dies at the end at the wedding, I'm assuming between Snow White and the prince, and she's she wears these like metal sandals that are scolding hot or something. Iron like. slippers, they call them. And yeah, they're, you know, red hot. They've been on the fire. So imagine when you see a blacksmith, he's melding the metal with the hammer. He's he's shaping it, rather. Uh, and it's, you know, orange with heat. That's what she has to uh, put on her feet and dance. It's it, it's very short. It, again, there's not a lot of detail <laughs> explaining it. That's what I love oh about what Disney did with the film is they go, they, what they do take from the fairy tale, they expand on. And so I, I really appreciate that. If you want a visual for there's a mini series that came out i only know it because my dad found it but essentially it uses a bunch of different fairy tales snow white included it's called the 10th kingdom i bet some some people probably know it uh because it got released someone watched it uh but there is a scene where there are iron slippers provided to a character in the story and so that's a visual that i reference in thinking about it from the, the fairy tale when did you stumble upon that? Well, when I was a kid, probably oh, probably okay. 11, 12, maybe. I uh, I have it on my computer. Interesting. From iTunes. I get, it's probably like five, six hours of... Oh, jeez. Yeah, it's a long, it's a long story. And, and there is a Snow White character involved in it. And, and a, a poison comb, too, at the very end. Interesting. Didn't mean to spoil that for all of you. Yeah, dude. Sorry. All right. And so eventually this movie premieres. Um, and it's interesting because it premiered at the Carthay Circle Theater and it it would have been interesting I think to when I was reading about it it would have been really interesting to sort of a, to attend or or be around at that time because it was a it was a big deal but I think people going into it a lot of the celebrities that were going into it from what I understood uh, through reading about it were sort of looking down their nose at the at the idea of, of this film. Wasn't it Ken Anderson who said that? I, I believe so. Uh, any, b- before we really dive into the premiere day, uh, you said earlier that Radio City Music Hall had booked, a, I guess, a showing or something like that around Christmas time. He, he had told, basically, whoever was in charge of that had given Walt a sort of handshake agreement that they were going to, once it was made, he would have somewhere to show it. And... Yeah, so there was that. So it was pretty much like they had somewhere to show it, and that was that was good. But Walt wanted to show his peers in Hollywood what animation could be. And so he used his contact at the Carthay Circle Theater, Fred Miller, to uh, have it premiere there on December 21st. Now, he they knew him because he, he invested in them to put out the skeleton dance, Silly Symphony, first, anyway. Yeah, which people did not want any part of because it didn't have Mickey Mouse originally. And it was very successful. So Fred Miller, he was he was down to invest in Snow White and the Seven... And Walt, really. And uh, I think that's pretty cool. And so Walt was able to put on the show for his peers. Back to the celebrities. Yeah, so there's all sorts of celebrities that were on hand for this premiere and they they even had like uh i think they had people in costume like seven dwarves in costume people you know people in costume those um Minnie mouse and mickey mouse in costume and it uh it's interesting because it's that sort of old-fashioned mickey mouse that you see and uh and the the seven dwarves uh, characters are also pretty, you know, pretty dated. 
it just the, co- the the costumes and things like that. But so if you ever see footage of it or, or photographs, you you notice that right away. But it, all sorts of celebrities on hand, and basically going into the film, the idea that, that Ken Anderson put forth, if if that is who indeed said it, was that it was not. Uh, they were sort of looking down their nose at it. But by the end of the film, people were people were crying. People people were laughing throughout the film at all the points they were supposed to be laughing at. And by the end of the film, you know, when Snow White is eventually done in by by the evil queen, people are are holding back tears and, and people are, are, are sort of crying. And it's a, it's a huge success. People coming out of the theater were just, you know, couldn't stop talking about it right away. So instantly they knew they had, they had hit on something. Yeah, I think you covered a lot of what happened there that night and uh, they, as a as a part of a promotional experience for people, they also had this place outside from the theater to Wilshire Boulevard. I don't know that distance cuz this theater doesn't exist anymore except for in California Adventure, a replica anyway, and that's I think yeah. that's pretty cool they did that. We could talk about that in a minute how it the, the movies in the parks um, but they had this place called Dwarfland, where they had the cottage and the dwarves. I think the dwarves would come out of the cottage and, and, and greet people at the theater, uh, perhaps. It's sort of cool to think about it like a, like a pre-theme park land, if you will. You know, like a it's space sort of a, where there's theming f- directly from a film. It's marketing for the film. Well, that's uh, what it was. But yeah. Actually, it gives some insight into why they do it in the parks, too. But... uh yeah, I thought that was really cool. There's very few there are very few pictures online though. I tried to find some because I thought it would be really cool, but it's and, not much. Yeah, but th- so that was an interesting tidbit that I didn't even know about until I read it in that book. Uh, so that was interesting. But I mean, basically, the the movie was just it, people were amazed, and pe- the the critics were. I mean, I. I a lot of what I'm reading is is not going to tell me the negative reviews, but it doesn't seem like there were many. It pretty much was a just unequivocal success right away, and and critically at the box office. If you all had that, a, if you had a critique of it, what would it be? I mean, there isn't much. It's it's a really really well done film, especially for the time. I mean, I can imagine how uh, how amazing it was to to see that. I mean, where does uh, the, where does the Disney in Disney history of things you would have liked to be at? Where does the premiere of Snow White fall on that list of like kind of events? Like you know, people talk about how they want to be at like the opening day of Disneyland, which we've discussed. Uh, may I mean, I, I suppose it would be interesting if someone gave you the option, the opportunity to to visit the opening day of Disneyland. Maybe you would take it, but if you had the option to to visit any. Disney sort of big event uh, in okay. history. Okay, so I have, I have two premieres that I would see. Probably first is Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Okay. After that is Mary Poppins. Oh, yeah, that'd be a good one too, actually. Yeah. Uh, those hmm. two, I because th- I they really, they had a big premiere for that one. Yeah, I remember, I remember hearing about that. So those um, two premieres, and then sometime in Disneyland history, I, I don't know. Yeah, Disneyland history, what would be a good day? whatever the point is 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 that's up there i think that in disney history the how about f- you what would you pick oh that's it those for sure. well snow white snow white I, I, the mary poppins thing didn't even come to my mind but but the snow white premiere uh is number one and whatever second isn't close enough to mention so 
So yeah, no, that, and it sounds like it was just, what's funny is I've read this, we, and you read it too, I'm sure, this story uh, about how like a third of the audience just left in the middle of the, in in the middle of the film or oh, like. Oh no, so that was actually on December 6th of that year. Oh, they had a, at, at the Pomona Theater, they had a, a preview, like a sneak preview. Oh, okay. And there were some college students who, yeah, they left uh, during the film, but they actually just had a curfew. They had to get back. It was that they all had a test, I think, to take. Yeah, or they had, well, they like had that. a timed thing. They had to go. They had a deadline to to meet, essentially. Yeah. So during this like sneak preview of the film, like a third of the audience just gets up and gets up and leaves, and everyone's like, "What is happening?" Because like everyone was laughing at the right moments. It was. It, it seemed like everyone yeah. was enjoying it, but then a third of the audience just up and leaves. And everyone's confused and they're concerned and they're trying to figure out what happened. And it turns out they just all had to go go back to their rooms, basically, and or take a test or something like that. They had an obligation, all yeah. of them. So that was interesting. Anyways, it, it was. I, I I imagine it was a very tense time for everyone. They were all very excited about the film, but at the same time, it was sort of. Uh, they didn't want it to fall on its face because that was. I mean, that would have really been a big problem for the company. I mean, I don't know what would have happened, but it, it it's likely that um, that would have sunk D- Disney just altogether. I mean, I would imagine. Just considering what they put into that film, if it had been a flop at the box office, I just think that would have been a disaster. I guess if there were one example of Walt's genius, of course he had help always. But this film like you just said there were high stakes the fact that it was so well done and that he was essentially the creative force behind it uh speaks to like you could i i would call him a genius of in his area of expertise you know yeah like creatively he's one of the most creative people for storytelling and how to do that visually and all that sort of stuff well and take a 10 page tale cut a considerable amount out of it and then make this sort of film. I mean, you take something that's 10 pages, very cryptic and uh, succinct, as you put it, and you you cut things from that, you, you cut like 40% or whatever out of it, and you still come up, you're able to come up with this great film. I mean, and he had to really be uh, just the ability to see what this could be. Even well, though there, nothing had ever been attempted like it before, the ability to, to have the foresight to see what this could be to keep him pushing through it is really amazing. Well, he had been working with animation for years at this point. And so he, he knew the capabilities of that, but he also knew going into, if he was going to make a Snow White film or tell that story, it was going to be that animation had to shine and tell the story. And so one of the books that I read, and you read it today, it sounds like... Uh, there was they called it that the story has a visual narrative that a lot of what we receive and learn about what's happening on the screen is visually told to us so the if any scene where there's not really much happening we still get like the tone of the color on the on the screen and we get all this information through this visual narrative the faces they make too the things yes. you can do with animation that you can't even do with people in live action let alone animals and things of that sort and and we talked about it earlier the, the her flight through the forest flight from yeah. the huntsman uh, that's that's all like part of a visual narrative there's not there's no dialogue really there's some screaming and stuff like that and some sounds but uh, and it's not in the grim tale 
So animation, and Walt said that, I think, in the story notes, was that that scene would be one in which animation could really shine. You could see what animation could do in, in terms of storytelling in a film. Yeah, it's it, and even now, you know, animation has a, a role to play in, in cinema. Back then, the with the limitations of live action, I mean, there was a lot that animation could do, I, I feel like, I'm not an expert, that live action just wasn't as capable of. With you know the the movement of the characters and things like that that you you just can't do uh in live action so i i walt's ability to see that and pursue it and through so many obstacles people telling him no people telling him he shouldn't you know the stuff with bank of america pushing through all of that to not and after all of that coming with just a home run of a product really if there's one thing you're going to say it's it's snow white to me is is one thing that in disneyland to have that those the foresight for each of those just a real visionary and a unique person that a lot of people i don't think would be able to push through all of that um and he was so is there uh what upon rewatch because i there's a lot of things when i rewatch this even though i just watched it a few weeks ago after reading a lot of a lot about this movie uh that kind of stuck out to me um, was there anything in particular that you saw that you really enjoyed or that you, you had a different perspective on? Well, why don't we get, I want to mention something first before we get into like favorites and stuff like that. Yeah, we enjoy, you got more, go. Just because I was looking through my notes here. And when I think about this film and we're talking just now about how great the Disney studio was and, and Walt himself too and creating this thing, but they actually received a lot of influence by watching other films. Yeah, that was something they did. They they had like a studio where they could Walt pull had like his Charlie Chaplin films and, and stuff. Yeah, yeah, just like that. And Walt had his animators go watch many different films to learn different ways of telling stories, and basically all in an effort to be growing in in their efforts. So I think that's really worth mentioning. They weren't doing this completely original version of the story. They took influence from different stories, including the like a small example is the the inclusion of animals in the uh the play and then the film that walt saw uh that inspired him along with being read the the tale by his grandmother to eventually if given the opportunity tell this story so there's a lot of borrowing and but also putting it all together that's where the team comes in yeah there's a lot that they uh like they they made the um they wanted the witch transforming into the old woman scene to be the way Walt des- described it was um, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Well, did you remember what ha- he- happened before that? Somebody offered up uh, that yeah. she, as she's coming down the steps, her hair would start to turn gray. Yeah, and Walt basically he was said not that, happy. About yeah, that. he basically <laughs> said that was crap. You could tell. You could tell from just what he said. That it was. I. It was reading it. We didn't hear it. It was. But yeah. the way he said it, basically, he was like, "I'm fantastically disappointed," or yeah. something like yeah, that. It was, yeah. it was like something you yeah, would never yeah, hear someone disappointed by that. that yeah, idea he's like, or "I'm fantastically disappointed that you would say that," or and something he, like and that. And then he said the Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde, yeah, thing, and that obviously is what we get. She she takes the she makes the the poison or whatever it's not funny poison you, but a uh, potion. It's funny you mentioned that because I read it twice because I was like wh- <laughs> I probably read it three or four times. Yeah, I was like was he, uh, just to make sure I read it correctly because it was like oh he's not happy like he was I could just tell reading that that he which was is probably upset. an indication of how much influence he had over this film. Yeah, well, and a lot, and he, and it makes sense. I mean, 
it, it maybe not just influence, but that he has a vision that he, he knows when you're veering off course. And that's yes. what that could speak to his genius. I'm not sure I'd have to do more of an analysis. On well, he that, was open but. to certain things, certain, certain things were sort of, you know, he was willing to, to move on them and, and have input from other people, but things like that, that he had a vision yeah, that for was already. Important. He was like, no, th- this is not something that's up for discussion. It's this is what's how that's going to be. So, yep, yeah. So, okay. So you ha- you asked me a question. Well, you and I can reiterate. tell you some of mine before I before you answer. But there was a few scenes well, that I you just want to reiterate reiterate the question a little bit. Just. Yeah, for me, when I rewatched this movie, based after I sort of read all of these things. And I'd read them before, but not all together, where I sort of collected uh, chapters of books and uh, and things from different texts and combined them all, and I read them in the last, like, two days. So for me, there was a couple of scenes um, the that I watched once and then actually rewound a couple of them. One of them was the 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 forest scene, which we already talked about, where I watched it and was paying very close attention to how they made it, you know, clear that Snow White was imagining all of these things, uh, that these, these things that were terrifying her into thinking she was being chased or, or whatever. And then, uh, the other scene that I rewound was the, the transformation of the queen into the old woman. I wanted to see sort of what they had kept from the, 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 the notes that, that I had from the meetings. I wanted to see what they had kept, what they had changed. And there was a lot of interesting stuff in there just to, to watch it with that perspective. I don't know if there was anything upon rewatch for you that you felt like uh, it, it was enhanced by doing that past reading specifically. Specifically, probably not. Uh, I did but the try film to, as a whole, maybe, but not anything yeah, specific. Yeah, I appreciated all the different things that I learned as much as I could remember while watching. Uh, so... It's important to to for me to say maybe that I read, I I read a lot of the stuff this morning, and then right when I was done, watched the movie like immediately after. And I read some of my stuff uh, in pre- preparation for the episode earlier in the week, and sort of a little bit recently. So uh, anyway, I've always loved this film. I, my mom and dad they they put it on. We had it on VHS at home. It was probably one of the first Disney films I ever saw. So I I always loved it as a kid. Um. Yeah, so no, I don't think one scene stands out that much. I always love the the silly the silly song when they're dancing and sort of just a party. That's just a fun one that I always enjoy. But I liked learning too that Walt wanted the instruments to all be like different. Yeah, and I don't know I don't know how that manifested itself in the film, but one way that it did was the the pipe organ. Like he said, it can't just be a pipe organ. And mm-hmm. so what we have is the I don't know what you call them. I guess the pipes. But they look like birds or different animals. Yeah. Uh, so you, there's stuff like that I like learning and then having a little bit more uh, to draw on when I see it and, and really appreciate. Yeah. No, and it was it, just – I've watched this movie a lot, but just the rewatch in this particular instance for me was, was enhanced. I think that uh, there's a lot – and for me too, watching the animals. I watched the animals a lot more this time and sort of noticed all the, the gags and things and, and how the animals helped to move the story along was interesting. Do you have a favorite uh, a favorite dwarf? Well, I love Doc. Yeah, I think he's, I think he's my favorite too. I think he might be the most underrated uh, just because you don't hear a lot about him. It's mostly grumpy and dopey you hear about. I love Doc because of his what they call malapropisms. I didn't you know have that to term. Explain. Yeah, so that's when you essentially mix up words, 
and you, so you say the wrong words. He does it pretty much. I noticed yeah. it this time. He does it every time he yeah. speaks. Like that's. Yeah. I love it, and I wish I could. I wish I could recall some now and, and, and do them. There's but. some that are really funny. I think there's one where he says he's trying to say nook and cranny, and he says it oh, seven yeah. different ways. And one of them is I think crook hook, and nanny, uh, nook and cr- uh, hook cr- and fanny is uh, I think what yeah. he says. Well, he says yeah, he says three different ones. <laughs> yeah, he just gives up. He never yeah. says it right. Yeah. <laughs> like you know what he's trying to say, yeah. and and a couple times Grumpy gets him to say something he's not trying to say because he's just not a good speaker. Yeah, and he'll kind of inject something into what Doc's like trying to say because doc's kind of this like pompous he's like the leader and he's a little bit it's like he's the leader but he was by age like yeah, put in the position like he like he's the oldest or something and he has to be the, the leader yeah. but he's not really made for it and grumpy's kind of like the the man behind the man and he'll he'll like whisper things and in, in uh in he's, doc's ear and, and he'll say them out loud and then realize oh yeah. wait that's not what i meant to yeah. say <laughs> it's like yeah so no i agree i think doc is my favorite too as a kid it was probably dopey yeah, I didn't watch this movie a lot as a kid. I don't have a lot of memory to draw on from that. But that's interesting because I think that's a large reason why I enjoy it so much. And you seem to enjoy it a lot. And you didn't watch it that much as a kid. No, I didn't. I it wasn't the ones that I had on VHS for sure. I had like some older ones, but not that one. The point is, is the dwarves are they enhance the story a lot. There's a, a lot they have to offer. Um, but yeah, I. I don't know. This, this film is certainly one of the one of the most not only revolutionary films in Disney history, but just it, it's really important for the culture. I think, and I don't think that can be understated. I always overstated. Going back to a little bit of favorites, I, not really favorite, but I was always scared of the witch as a kid. The ride at, you spoke about this. The attraction did, did that used to scare you, or is that just? Because everyone I guess, talks about it, how when they were kids, like it was that the film. Witch. It was the film for me first. The attraction, sure, yeah, that was. But at a certain point, you, you you start to grow up and you realize what's going on there. But when you see this pretty realistic animated character on the screen and those really big eyes and their you know the nose, the crooked nose, it's and she's a can like you could see someone like that. Like that, she's a conceivable looking. Like she looks really scary, but you could see someone that looked like that actually existing. And the voice is incredible. Uh, I love when they can really get a good old, like an old voice like that, but one that also sounds like a witch. And fun fact, the same woman did both the queen and the witch. Oh, really? All, and basically, the story goes that all she had to do to t- turn into the witch was take out her false teeth. <laughs> and I've heard that multiple places. That's interesting. Yeah. It's true. That, that's all it took. I imagine that it is true, yeah. Fascinating. Uh, I where, think that's really cool. Where that she did both? <laughs> well, because they sound—they don't sound anything alike, really. But uh, you can kind of hear it in the in the Queen a little bit. She really puts it on with the witch and takes it out too with the teeth. But uh, I don't need an actual ranking. But where, where, generally speaking, does the Queen fall in in all time villains? I mean, she's the original. Oh, I don't. You love villains. I have a lot of fun with this. Y- you think about villains way more than I do. But if I, I it's, it, I don't think about the Queen as a villain as often as I would say Scar or some of the newer ones, like or the Gaston. But the Queen is definitely one of them. Uh, yeah. Top five, I'd say. Yeah, just for the history of it, almost. I think that there, she has to be up there. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. What does she say when she walks up to the mirror, Thomas? Do you know? This is one that people mix up. Magic a lot. mirror on the wall. Magic mirror on the wall. A lot of people think it's mirror mirror on the wall. It is and you not. can remember magic because Disney magic. Is that how you remember it? Well, that's that's one. What do you call that? A mnemonic device. Yeah. 
Yes, that's part of how I remember it. I actually just decided that's how I'm going to remember it yesterday. But uh, that's one that you magic mirror on the wall. Michaela and I had a debate on on the pier in San Francisco, and I pulled up the because it's one of those ones that people commonly get mistaken with it's the it, it's actually become like this sort of general consensus it's mirror mirror on the wall so the the story that i read uh from in that fairy tale book with many different stories it said the actual translation they used was looking glass looking glass yeah yeah so that that would match with mirror mirror so i get where it comes from but in the disney version it's magic mirror yeah looking that's another thing looking glass i'm glad they changed like there's just things that they changed from the grim tales oh, yeah. that i'm like the we can get into it now i guess the prince the the whole transaction with the prince and the and how well he that, wasn't there at the beginning of the story so that was in the ad- grim tales yeah. right so that was an addition in a disney film which works well yeah there was a lot of debate on how they were going to work that too introducing the prince and uh i read something where originally it was going to be snow white kind of imagining that she had this sort of i guess a prince and she creates this scarecrow like figure with a bucket on for a head and it was and she was going to call it sir Buckethead. and then as she was like talking to this thing the prince would kind of come up behind her and start talking and she would think it's coming from the scarecrow but it's really the actual prince which is similar to what ends up happening it's but it, walt decided that he didn't want any kind of gags in that scene yeah which is what we see throughout the movie where these you know these human characters don't have a lot of have a lot of gags um but yeah the prince eventually down the line he's trying to purchase the coffin or there's some transaction that's what i gathered i didn't go back and and uh, reread the story to figure out exactly what it was but when i told robert soon after reading the story about it it was like yeah he was interested in in purchase <laughs> this was the most puzzling part it's like this. he was interested in buying the coffin in which the girl laid but the dwarves weren't willing to give up the girl, from what I remember. So he being the son of a, a, a king in one of the other kingdoms, he said he would marry her or something to that effect. And that is what happened. So he must have, like as a part of the deal, to get the coffin or whatever. It's it's bizarre. And again, they don't give us much detail. So, <laughs> yeah. And I could be getting parts of it wrong, but that's the gist. Like it was sort of a clunky way of getting this princess to marry this prince. Uh, and it was by no means a focus of the story. It was something that was in at the very end. Yeah, interesting. Uh, but but a great movie, and I recommend that anyone who's interested um, look into the literature that's behind it. I don't have any... Well, we have that one book that's specifically on it, but um, there's we have a lot of books around here that that kind of go into it in, in different chapters, so you can look in, into some of those. But definitely... I, I rec- wonder how they're going to know which books... Yeah, well, we'll put those in the show notes, is what I think you're well, we implying. Could, yeah, we could do that, too. We could also just list off. One of them well, is that biography we talked about. Yeah, so biography, can you name it off one more time? Uh, Walt Disney and American Original. Bob Thomas. Yes. is the writer. There's also the Vault of Walt, and it's uh, the... Yes, uh, volume number one. There's one chapter uh, that's, that talks specifically about the premiere. And so we use that to get a little bit of information, and that's from Jim Corcus, K-O-R-K-I-S, Another one is this big coffee table book. It's actually like a $200 book, so I don't think a lot of people are going to go out there and buy it. I got it on Amazon for like 75 bucks because that was a sale at the time. Um, but it it's called, uh, oh, I think it's called Walt Disney Film Archives, 1928 to 1967. So it includes 
There's a lot in there. Yeah, like all the way from Steamboat Willie to Jungle Book, essentially. And so there's one chapter on Snow White. But what's great about this book, just to talk about that for a second, is that the pages, it being a coffee table book, are large. And many of the pages have artwork on them from each film that you're reading about. Get a so really it, good look at it. So it's really beautiful. To, it's a beautiful yeah. book, but there's also a lot of great information because different authors write about the different films. So you ha- we read one author's version of... Snow, uh, the recounting of Snow White, and it seemed like he was an art, an art critic, not a critic, but an artist who could look at it from the the the, uh, the lens of an artist. And so there were appreciations in there that he noticed, or she, I can't remember. Um, I think her, I think it was Robbins something. Even still, yeah, this book is is a great resource for information, and just um, in general, not even just Snow White. So if it, you can find it and you're interested, and then there there actually are. There, we used one other book, and that was. Ooh, it's, it's it's essentially the museum catalog or the ex, 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 the exhibition catalog for the Walt Disney Family Museum's exhibit from years ago on Snow White. But uh, there's a lot of good information in there. It's mostly like an art book. But I love if, the artwork yeah. from these films. It's really fun to look at. I mean, it's like you said about that one book with the huge pages. It's just beautiful to, to observe and to look. And so. there's, uh, there's also another book that's for sale at the Walt Disney Family Museum that's specifically more text-driven uh, about the making of Snow White, and that one is called uh, The Fairest One of All. The Fairest One of All. I, can't, I think it's by J.B. Kaufman, maybe a couple other people, but that one would be the one to go for, I think. Is that available for, only at the museum, or is, is it I think it might on? be on Amazon as well. Look into it. For a while, and it may still be the case, if you're local to the Bay Area... Uh, that book is like 35 bucks. It's marked down a lot um, at the moment. So Here's the bottom line, I mean, for me. If you're into that movie or you don't really know a lot about the history of it and, or, and maybe you, don't, you think it's an older film and you're not that interested in watching it, read some of the history on it and, and get into that and then watch the film. And I think you'll find that you have a sort of, one, if you've, watch it before and you you do appreciate it you have a sort of rejuvenated a uh appreciation for it and maybe if you think oh it's an older film i'm not interested you'll find an appreciation for it if you have any appreciation for the the history of these sorts of things i mean that's what i found and i already enjoy the film so for me it sort of rejuvenated that but i could see if i wasn't as interested in it that this would get me into it and if you're not really a reader you could you could if you already own it, great. But if you could access the special features on, uh, I guess, a Blu-ray of of Snow White, there was about a thirty-minute making of Snow White that was very interesting and covered a lot of what we told you uh, here today. So that's one way that if you don't want to buy a bunch of books and you'd rather have the movie and maybe also get some special features with it, uh, you could try something like that. Is there anything, Robert, that? a scene or something or song that's really your favorite from the film that you love most yeah my favorite and we've we've mentioned it before so it's i I think i know what yours is my favorite is the whole scene when she after she figures out that she's uh that's no way so alive to when she transforms into the witch or the the old woman that whole I we've talked about this, but I love the villain thing. So I love that whole scene 
For me, that's it. You know, again, by the way, a villain undermined by her her henchmen, just done in by her inability to pick someone up to the task. It's because evil doesn't win. I th- actually, I've I've thought about this, and I think it's because these these um, villains they choose B people. They don't have a lot of A A people on their on their team, meaning they don't have a lot of high quality employees, right? They choose these sort of these sort of B B minus people. Like uh and this isn't so much true for the henchmen, but for like Scar and the hyenas, they're just complete idiots. And then you've got pain and panic, they're useless. And um this isn't as much true for the henchmen. He was just like or the huntsman. He was just sort of sympathetic to he didn't want to kill someone in cold blood. But it's sort of a this thing where they're picking these people who kind of aren't very good at anything and and it's this trend that I'm seeing with the villains but they're always seemingly always undermined by their um their underlings so again we see that here and then she goes down into her what what would you call it her her it's a dungeon yeah but but I love real quick when she's going down the music starts at the top of a scale and goes down to the bottom. Yeah. So from the higher notes to the lower. Yeah. And it's that kind of musical touch that I really enjoy in any film, but especially in this one. And they do that a lot in di- different places too, but that one's most noticeable. Yeah. I like when she tortures the little raven or the crow with the apple and all that. Okay. I just like all that. That whole that whole scene, and it's really just her, but I yeah. enjoy it. That's a really good one. The transformation is great. She's holding her throat and she, her hair starts to turn gray. Yeah. And, yeah. And much, much better than it. her hair turning gray going down the stairs. Yeah, I don't even know. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. What about you? I think I know yours, but I want well, you to Well, why don't you guess? It. What do you think it is? Is it the chase scene between the dwarfs and the after, old woman? Yeah, after Snow White has fallen. I, I, so second favorite would be the, the party scene. I love that song. And then... Uh, yeah, that's, that's fun. That's a fun real scene. Real quick about that song is that that was the fifth, the fifth version of songs that they created for that scene and what was perfect about it is they could use they could have the lyrics be interchangeable like you could just the song could keep going and going and going you could put lyrics in anywhere it was the kind of song it was so the well, they the do different li- go ahead the different dwarves have lines here and there they freestyle yes and, and it works with the song so that type of song was fit into that scene and it worked perfectly yeah no that's that's a fun scene i like like bashful does his thing where he will not sing and then eventually grumpy gets him to do it and then happy has his little yeah his little part but get into your um favorite scene which is the chase scene after snow white has has sort of been um taken down yeah that's it that's it what do you like about it uh no i i love that the animals and the dwarves are so motivated to go help snow white and then also avenge her death um, so they're making their way to the mine that the animals are, they realize first that there's a problem. So they go after the dwarves, but then the dwarves immediately before they get to work, cause they're caught by the animals, but just before they get to work, they, you know, get on the, the backs of the, uh, the animals and then they flee back to the cottage. And then eventually they end up chasing the queen up to her demise where she falls off the, uh, the rock. Um, again, not part of the grim tale. I love that there's a motivation behind them to, to do that. Yeah, that they're so invested and they, they yeah. have so much uh, admiration or, or if you want to call it, they have so much love for Snow White that they're chasing down 
the the evil queen to to avenge her. Yeah, that's great. I I've always found it interesting. One more thing on the scene I was talking about earlier that the evil queen. I, I don't think her transformation to the old woman is a permanent change. That's not the impression I got, but I found it interesting that her whole thing is being like the most beautiful person in the in the world or of them all or whatever. Very vain. But she's willing to sacrifice that and become this old, very, you know, ugly old woman uh, for this sort of pursuit of of taking down Snow White because of this jealousy that because of the, this jealousy has taken her over, she's willing to sacrifice the things she cares about most in order to sort of fulfill that jealousy. I don't think that's something they maybe intentionally did, but it's it's sort of an interesting thing that I've always enjoyed about that scene, that, she, that those are the, the, the one thing that matters to her most, this sort of uh, jealous pursuit. She's willing to um, give up the thing that she cares about most, this, her looks, I guess, That's in pursuit of that. What, when you were saying that, I was thinking that really what I think she's doing, and maybe this was intentional, I didn't read this anywhere, though, was that maybe we're seeing someone who wants to be the most beautiful woman alive in the land, turn into the most ugly thing to go try to kill the most beautiful thing. And essentially showing us that her motive is ugliness. It's, yeah. She's, she's, not, an, she's not a really, she's not motivated by that's interesting good intentions. Too. That's not, that's in not something I thought of. But yeah, my thing was she's, she's willing to go to these, basically give up the thing that's most important yeah. to her in pursuit of this, this jealous, this jealousy fueled homicide basically. It was interesting to me when I when I think about it that way. But you're yeah, what you're saying is also interesting. So no, that's the thing about these movies too. There's a lot of interpretations of the little things that you can kind of that you can decide what yeah. you think about things, and and that's what I like about them too. They're they're not telling you what to think. So in a lot of cases, are there any maybe lessons you learned one or two that like creatively that you could take from like how they put this together? I have something in mind, but if you well, why don't you go first? Well, it was spoken about in one of the books that I I read, or that we read, um, that they really kept it and took the story down to its bare essentials. Mm -hmm. And they didn't try to do too much. And in certain scenes, things had to be understated. You didn't do too much. So at the very end, when uh, Snow White is in her coffin and the dwarves are all around crying, there was an alternative idea that, you know... uh, there'd be more screaming going on by some of the dwarves and there'd be more, they'd be doing this thing off in the left, you know, like they're, they're crying, screaming sort of thing. They're really wailing. Yeah. Uh, but it, they figured it would be more understated and more effective emotionally. You're laughing for some reason. Uh, I'm just, a, <laughs> I don't know why. Go. I know why. Uh, but anyway, so the audience turned out, it was true that an understated emotion of being more silent and just sort of quietly, sobbing or weeping to yourself yeah uh, all around her was more effective than doing something that there was a lot more action but also it was sad like it was too predictable to do that kind of stuff yeah well when, when, and, go ahead sir. Uh, and, and then that that lesson also was done and there was uh, another idea for as just an example when they they cut something from the film and it was appropriate in the song um someday my prince will come there was an idea that snow white should enter like a dreamscape where she and the prince would, like, she'd have a dream of what she and the prince would be doing together and that kind of thing. But uh, that was cut because it would be, again, too much. 
And uh, I love that they could see that and, and then cut these things down. So there's plenty of interpretation uh, for us. That we, Again, it's a visual narrative. We don't have to be told everything. Yeah, exactly. That That's one, when you you assume your audience is smart enough to to and that's what i think really good filmmakers do is they assume the audience is smart enough to figure certain things out on their own i mean we have imaginations and we use them all the time yeah you can you can put us in the right direction and we'll fill in the gaps yeah like you don't have to say everything to us for some reason and i apologize i was laughing because i was just imagining the dwarf screaming and how out of like but like not screaming like you would at a funeral even just like screaming for some reason. <laughs> and that's, I knew when I said, I knew what you were thinking. And I'm of, just imagining it. how out of place that would be. And I was like, it just got me laughing. But I think in general, you find screams to be funny. <laughs> oh yes. Well, I I'm, think many people do. I do too, but, uh, <laughs> well, a well placed, a scream in the right spot can be funny. That's for sure. In the wrong spot, maybe is a better way to put it. Uh, for me, I mean, it's, it's sort of just the, everything that it took to make this film is sort of motivational for Like I take things out of that where it's like, you know, no one. It doesn't seem like there was a lot of people who thought this was going to work just when it was the when it was in its infancy, but it ended up working better than anyone, even maybe Walt had ever imagined it would. And I, that's the sort of thing that I take from the the whole story of this. And then when I watch it now, just how amazing it turned out to be. And that sort of that's the sort of thing I take from it. Just that that sort of persistence that it took to make something like this, but how great it turned out in the end. I think another indicator of Walt's genius is that upon this success, he didn't just bask in the glory of it. He wanted to use it as a way to do more ambitious projects, yeah, to people, create more. I read something, and I, I don't remember which book it was, but basically like people thought like the next day he would take a break or something, but he was instantly like, oh, what's the next one we're going to yeah. make? That, I think that's part of his genius is wanting to always do new new things but also better things and try to create new ways of doing things and they certainly did that he's relentless yeah just a relentless creative person so yeah that just this like we said more than anything is is sort of a study of walt and his genius for me and this is where it may be the best example of it yeah i think i agree watch it again it certainly helped that he had those years even just with Mickey, like five years before he decided, because it was in 1933 that they really, it really started to crystallize, I think, uh, yeah. that they were going to do this thing. Uh, but the five years before that, he had a lot of practice in animation. And even before that, there was a lot of practice in these new techniques and stuff. And well, so fail- a, failures, you know, things that didn't work. Yeah. So uh, And so there's a lot of motivation to do well, but he also had the uh, experience and, in, in, uh, I guess, imagination to make it work. Yeah. Really, and the Silly Symphonies were sort of the minor leagues for this that, that helped him him and his company sort of hone their skills so that they could make a film like this. Like, if they had just set out to make this right off the bat, it definitely wouldn't have been as good as it came out to be. And I guess, yeah, because with Steamboat Willie, you got some sound into the cartoons, and then you really started to tell a different story uh, with the classical music of the Silly Symphonies and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and that was sort of an introduction of, of characters, even though there's no really vocals uh, so you you get, yeah, they're sort of building to this feature film and practicing on the way these different technologies. Something that I was hoping is happening with the live action remakes is that they're practicing technologies maybe. and they're going to lead to some bigger thing. And maybe it will happen. You are more optimistic than me. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, uh, we, I mean, just a lot of fun. Like I said, you should go back 
and watch that movie if you haven't watched it in a while, or even if you've watched it recently, and maybe some of this perspective will will give you a different look at it and a new appreciation, because I know that, that I felt that, and it sounds like Thomas felt the same way. Thanks so much for joining us, and you can join us again next week for episode 15 of the Talking Llamas podcast. Have a good one, guys. Talk to you later.